Hi, this is John. Today's podcast tells a story that most Americans don't know very much about. At the legal level, it's about a real estate dispute that worked its way up to the Israeli Supreme Court. In that case, the court ruled in favor of an Israeli extremist group, Ateret Kohanim, and against the Greek Orthodox Church of Jerusalem over properties that straddled the Yaffa Gate into the old city of Jerusalem. It's a sordid tale. Our guest on the podcast, retired U.S. Ambassador Patrick Theros, says Ateret Kohanim seeks the removal of non-Jews from Jerusalem and has regularly harassed the Christian community in the old city. Ateret Kohanim's activities are funded by U.S. taxpayers through its U.S. subsidiary, which is a 501c3 not-for-profit corporation. The Greek Orthodox Church is not without its wrongdoers. The former patriarch of the church participated in a bribery scheme related to Ateret Kohanim's acquisition of a 99-year lease to the property, and the patriarch was ousted by the church. But beyond the question of any fault, Ambassador Thero says that the ruling could give Ateret Kohanim a stranglehold on the Jaffa Gate into the Old City, effectively cutting off the main point of Christian access to the sites of Christ's passion, crucifixion, and resurrection. On another level, this ruling, coupled with efforts by right-wing Israeli lawmakers to take away church properties, could put the economic survival of all of Jerusalem's churches at risk. What most Americans don't know is that the Greek Orthodox Church is the original church in Jerusalem, dating back in an unbroken line nearly 2,000 years to Christ's Apostle James, long before Christianity split into separate branches. The Greek Orthodox Church, with the other two ancient churches, the Armenian Church and the Roman Catholics, who, by the way, arrived in Jerusalem from the West centuries later, all share an administration of the old city's Christian holy sites. The churches also rely on their real estate to survive, as the Christian population has dwindled in the Holy Land, and the churches derive virtually no income from Christian pilgrims. The holy sites are not revenue generators for the church, though the pilgrims are a major revenue source for the Israeli tourism industry. The Greek Orthodox Church is one of the biggest landowners in the Holy Land, even owning the land under the Israeli Knesset, which it has leased to the Israeli state for 99 years. Another thing most Americans might not know is that the Greek Orthodox Church has owned some of its properties in the Holy Land for more than a thousand years. Before we begin, let me mention one thing about this podcast. It's the first one I've recorded remotely. Patrick, in Washington, spoke to me in New York via Skype. I made the mistake of leaving video off, so we didn't have the visual cues one has in a regular conversation, and it was hard to break into the conversation. That's why I'm calling this a debrief from Patrick rather than an interview. But I did get in the questions that I think needed to be asked. Finally, as you listen to this podcast, consider the credibility of our source. Patrick Theros is a career U.S. Foreign Service officer who rose to the rank of U.S. Ambassador to Qatar. He's been decorated for bravery, receiving the Superior Honor Award from the State Department for his heroic efforts to reach and rescue 147 Americans trapped in crossfire between the Nicaraguan National Guard and insurgents in the Grand Hotel in Managua during an uprising in 1967. Let's listen to the tale Patrick tells us. Atarit Kohanim is an extremist organization that has as its openly stated objective the removal of all non-Jews from the old city of Jerusalem. And their definition of non-Jews, by the way, includes a lot of people 
who regard themselves as Jewish, just not their kind of Jewish. For Ateret Kohanim to take over Jaffa Gate and do what it's done elsewhere, which is to thoroughly disrupt the life of Christians in the old city, is very close to a death knell for their presence there. This cannot stand. This is, in fact, an existential threat to the continued presence of Christianity in the city of Jerusalem. This is Podcasting with John Metaxas. Thank you for joining us today. Our topic today is nothing less than the survival of Christianity in the Holy Land. That's what our guest says, the Honorable Patrick Theros, a career foreign service officer and former U.S. ambassador to Qatar. Patrick had a 36-year career in the foreign service from 1963 to 1999. In addition to being ambassador, he was deputy coordinator for counterterrorism, political advisor to the commander-in-chief of Central Command, and had postings in Jordan, Abu Dhabi, Syria, Saudi Arabia, Lebanon, Nicaragua, as well as at the State Department in Washington. Patrick, thank you for joining us. What a distinguished career you've had. John, thank you very much. I'm uh, truly honored that a journalist of your caliber would take the, would take, I really appreciate this, take the time. Well, you say this is a question of survival of Christianity in the Holy Land. Let's begin with a June 10th Israeli Supreme Court decision in favor of a Jewish settler group and against the Greek Orthodox Church. Tell us what was held in that uh, ruling. Okay, that ruling essentially confirmed a lower court decision that a what we believed uh, contend to be a fraudulent transaction gave a, an extremist settler group known as a Teret Kohanim back-to-back 99-year leases on the uh, on four properties around the western gate of the old city of Jerusalem, Jaffa Gate. Why this is important? Uh, it's actually almost existential for several reasons. Jaffa Gate is the entry to the Christian and Armenian quarters of the city. Uh, Jaffa Gate uh, is either the location of the offices of many of the Christian uh, organizations, the offices of the Custos, the Franciscan custodian of the holy places, sits directly at Jaffa Gate. Uh, the way you get to the Orthodox Patriarchate is through Jaffa Gate. The way you get to the Armenian Patriarchate is through Jaffa Gate. The way 90% of Christian pilgrims enter the old city to go to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, the tomb, and the other holy places inside the, uh, uh, the old city of Jerusalem is through Jaffa Gate. So this is probably the key crossroads for everything important to the Christian churches in Jerusalem. Uh, and what, so we've lost four properties, uh, regardless of the manner in which we've lost control of these properties, what difference does it make? Atarit Kohanim is an extremist organization that has as its openly stated objective the removal of all non-Jews from the old city of Jerusalem. And their definition of non-Jews, by the way, includes a lot of people who regard themselves as Jewish, just not their kind of Jewish. Uh, when a Kohani has an unbroken 20-year record of acquiring other properties in the old city of Jerusalem, some legitimately, some by intimidation or coercion, some by fraud. And then when it acquires such a property, it immediately makes the property a center for disrupting the neighborhood. 
They play loud music at uh, odd hours of the night. They put armed guards on the streets in front of their properties. They uh, lay barbed wire around properties uh, so that to prevent people from coming. If this isn't enough, they uh, attack uh, passersby. They've uh, they spit on women. They've uh, assaulted priests. Uh, they make it basically impossible for anyone to function in the immediate neighborhood around the property. Uh, when we call the when the uh, patriarchate, when the Christians call the police, they have the police intimidated. This is a small organization, but immensely powerful because it has a great deal of money, and it has an organization known as Friends of Ater Kohanim which is a 501c3 charity in the United States from which it derives its uh, sources of funding. And as we all know in politics, money speaks. And a lot of people in the Israeli body politic, probably the majority of people in the Israeli body, body politic who dislike Atarit Kohanim and what it's doing are intimidated by it. So you call the cops and three out of four times the cops don't come and half the time when they do come, they arrest the person who complained rather than somebody else. So let's um, just be clear for a second. You have served as the Washington representative of the Greek Orthodox Patriarchate of Jerusalem to the United right. States. So what's your involvement uh, with the uh, Patriarchate right now? Uh, my involvement with the Patriarchate is basically informing people in the United States about what is going on. Most Americans, the overwhelming majority of Americans, are unaware that there is an, an indigenous Christian presence in uh, in Jerusalem and in the holy sites, uh, a very it, it's slightly tragic comic, but the most common question a visitor asks an indigenous Christian in Jerusalem is who converted you. To which the answer is this is where Jesus lived. Jesus converted us. Jesus Christ, uh, the patriarch of Jerusalem, is the 142nd holder of the seat of Saint James. Uh, the Apostle. Uh, this has been a continuous uh, Christian presence there literally since Pentecost Day. Most Americans don't know that. Uh, most Americans are unaware that there are Christians uh, in these, quote, Arab countries or the Middle East. Most, uh, Very few Americans know that until about the 17th century uh, in Palestine and in Syria and in uh, Lebanon and Jordan, Christians were probably close to a majority of the population. Certainly until the 1600s, there were more Christians living in the Middle East than were living in Europe. So this huge Christian presence has now dwindled to the point uh, where there is no place outside of Lebanon where Christians exceed 10% of the population. In most cases, uh, like in the city of Jerusalem, the uh, we are probably down to one or two percent of the population. Uh, the old city used to, in 1950, the old city had 30,000 Christians living in, in the old city and another 30,000 living in the uh, more modern parts of the city of Jerusalem. Uh, today, there are 2,000 Christians living in the old city and another 4,000 in the whole, of the, the whole of Jerusalem. These numbers have gone down tremendously and the more the life of Christians in the area is disrupted, uh, the fewer and fewer there, there will be. Uh, we talk amongst ourselves that in another decade, at the rate we're going, all we're, the only Christian presence in uh, Jerusalem is going to be museums. 
passing, you know, churches, the holy museum aspect, and that's all that's going to be there. So for Eteret Kohanim to take over Jaffa Gate and do what it's done elsewhere, which is to thoroughly disrupt the life of Christians in the old city, is very close to a death knell for their presence there. So this particular case has to do with uh, a property that was obtained by this group from the Greek Orthodox Church. Yes. Tell us what happened and then what, what the church was contending and and how the court sorted that out. Okay. And uh, uh, Tarek Kohanim has engaged in a number of uh, transactions of this type. Most of them were in sort of odd neighborhoods, and we didn't pay that much attention, which is our, bad on us. Uh, in, 19, in 2005, or 2004, excuse me, uh, Tarek Kohanim, through one of its eight uh, lawyers, approached the finance officer of the Greek Orthodox Patriarchate. The finance officer uh, basically said, we would like to acquire these four properties, three hotels and a house, immediately adjacent to Jaffa, uh, to Jaffa Gate. And the way you acquire them, you, you don't buy them, you get 99-year leases with all the money paid up front, generally. And they offered the, uh, their, we filed uh, papers, they offered the, uh, the finance officer some, uh, several millions of dollars, uh, numbers not quite specific, but up to $12 million. Finance officer then obtained from the patriarch uh, the then patriarch, Edinaeus, a power of attorney allowing him to negotiate these four properties. Uh, the power of uh, Edinaeus issued the power of attorney without going through the proper channels, which in this case would have been to obtain the uh, permission of the Holy Synod. The organization of the Orthodox Church is that the patriarch uh, is in the effect the chairman of the board and CEO, uh, but he does depend on a synod of 17 bishops and uh, other hierarchs, and he could not actually have given this power of attorney without doing so. Nonetheless, he uh, without their uh, without their vote, without their permission. Nonetheless, he did without informing the synod. Uh, the assumption is uh, that he uh, participated in the bribe with the finance officer. Uh, the finance officer was given the power of attorney. He negotiated these four leases secretly with uh, Tarek Kohanim. Uh, technically, there were four Cayman Islands and Bahamas corpor uh, shell corporations that took the leases in each case. Uh, we have presented a lot of evidence to the court indicating that the leases were obtained fraudulently, that the, the bribes were paid that uh, the Tarek Kohanim tried to hide, uh, used its uh, lawyers to prevent these transactions from appearing on the land registry in Jerusalem, whole uh, a ream of cases. Uh, the uh, transactions were discovered in 2000, early 2005 by an uh, investigative journalist for the Israeli newspaper Ma'ariv, which revealed them. The Holy Synod became, then learned about the transactions that had taken place. The uh, Holy Synod deposed the, the then patriarch, Irineos, who the one who had signed the, uh, uh, the power of attorney, uh, deposed him, uh, reduced him uh, in rank to a simple monk, and elected a new patriarch, 
the current one, Theophilos, who promptly instituted a court case against the Tarek Kohanim uh, to invalidate the leases. Uh, the court case, Tarek Kohanim slow rolled the case. They slow rolled the case for 14 years. Early in, uh, I'm sorry, thir uh, 13 years. Uh, in tw uh, late 2018, Tarek Kohanim got a judge whom we, who, how could I say, without questioning the integrity of a judge, I don't want to sound like some people, but a judge who was married to a member of a political party that supports Tarek Kohanim. And she ruled that Tarek Kohanim acted in good faith, that Tarek that there Kohanim was not aware that the leases had been obtained fraudulently, decided not to hear the evidence other than Tarek Kohanim acted in good faith, and uh, ruled in favor of Tarek Kohanim. We appealed to the Supreme Court uh, of Israel, which is the only... It's sort of a misnomer. It's actually the it's a higher court of appeals. There is no permanent Supreme Court, as uh, as is in the United States. But we appealed to the Israeli Supreme Court, which uh, appointed a three judge panel to hear the case, to hear the appeals, and this immediately became a major political issue in Israel. They the Supreme Court, the Minister of Justice at the time, was a member of a political party which uh, has been seeking on a separate issue to confiscate the property of churches throughout Israel. And in the end of the Supreme Court, uh, the three-judge panel ruled two to one to affirm the lower court decision. Uh, we, have, we now are taking, now in a purely legal sense, we're taking two tacks. The first is that two people have stepped forward with more evidence uh, for uh, for the fraud, including uh, documentation indicating that Atarik Kohanim asked the land registry office not to register the transaction, and, and some other uh, evidence as well, of a former minister being involved in the transaction, because these are, these are actually quite valuable properties. And so we've asked the court to reopen the case. In the meantime, we've also asked for the court to stay the execution of the judgment so that the Tarek Kohanim does not force out the current tenants. We have also taken a more another tack, which is that in the past, the state has intervened, quote, to prevent the change in the nature of a neighborhood. Uh, a few years back, an Arab citizen of Israel bought property in the Jewish quarter of Jerusalem from a Jewish family, all quite a legitimate transaction, and the state intervened on the grounds that it would not permit the sale because it would change the character of the Jewish quarter of the city. We're asking the state now to take the same decision with regard to the Christian quarter of the city in Jaffa Gate. So, and what has been the, the reaction meantime, of the Christian churches of Jerusalem uh, to the ruling and to the appeal uh, by the Greek Orthodox Church? Right. The Christian churches of Jerusalem, the one thing that these events over the last few years have uh, last 15 years of causes, for the first time in 2,000 years, all the Christian churches in Jerusalem are on the same side. We used to squabble a lot. There is an organization now called the Patriarchs and Heads of Churches of the Holy Land, uh, which meets the uh, Greek Orthodox Patriarch, the Franciscan Kustos, and the Armenian Patriarch are sort of the triumvirate 
who speak for it primarily. Uh, they have been conducting a worldwide campaign. They've been to Rome, to the Vatican, to London. Uh, we've enlisted the support of people as far as di uh, as disparate as Prince Charles, uh, the Prince of Wales, and Vladimir Putin, and the Pope, all uh, writing, talking, speaking to the Israeli government that this cannot stand. This is, in fact, an existential threat to the continued presence of Christianity in the city of Jerusalem. Uh, and recently, we have been conducting an information campaign here in the United States because it has been our observation that the majority of Israeli politicians are somewhat horrified by a terror Kohanim, but are afraid to take it on, particularly in an election period. Uh, some Israeli politicians have other reasons for supporting them, but uh, the main one being money, primarily. And... A uh, and we have discovered that when enough foreigners, foreign politicians in foreign countries call in, so to speak, uh, the Israeli government gets, uh, gets its spine strengthened. Uh, I, I credit to Bibi Netanyahu. He appears to be the only senior Israeli politician who recognizes that it is not in the interests of the state of Israel to get into a confrontation with the whole of organized Christianity, uh, and has intervened several times in the past to reverse other actions taken against the churches. Uh, but this is the first time, uh, but now he's in the throes of election. There's no guarantee that he will win the election, and acting against Atir Kohanim doesn't help his political party. To what extent does it hurt the uh, case of the Greek Orthodox Church that there was wrongdoing by the Greek Orthodox Patriarch and one of his administrators? Uh, it, it has certainly given us a, uh, a public relations black eye. Uh, the fact that the Patriarch was deposed, uh, reduced in rank, which was uh, the, uh, literally the limit of the authority, of the, uh, sort of the judicial authority uh, of the Church, uh, is lost on most people. Uh, the Israelis have never conducted a criminal investigation, even though uh, they were asked to do so uh, into the matter. Uh, so, yeah, it hurts. And it hurts because added to stories of, and there has been some past malfeasance, uh, that cannot be denied, uh, added to the fact that a lot of Palestinians don't want the church to deal with Israelis anywhere, not even in pre-67 Israel, um, which is simply impossible because we are, one, we are not a political institution, and two, without uh, normal, uh, without the normal activities of the real state arms of all the churches, not just of the Greek Orthodox Church, none of us could survive. Uh, the... Uh, right now, the, all the churches, and I think collectively, this applies and individually, uh, all the churches are depend on their real estate revenues. This is real estate that's been acquired over the last thousand plus years for, uh, in order to function. Uh, for example, I mean, without the real estate provides something like 90 to 95 percent of the revenue of the Orthodox Church, and I think the same can be said for most of the other older churches there. Uh, between them, the churches have uh, something like 500 holy places spread all through the region. Uh, 
uh, school systems with over 50,000 kids, several hospitals and health centers, charitable organizations, old folks' homes and stuff like that, and we even operate a refugee relief center in North Jordan. All that is financed primarily by the real estate transactions. If you lose control of the real estate, the churches can't survive. And there have been attempts to limit uh, the uh, church's uh, rights to their properties uh, introduced into the parliament, haven't there been? Yes. uh, There was a bill introduced uh, a couple of years ago to the Knesset that actually the title of the bill was the bill for the confiscation of church property, of church real estate. And this also, if if I could uh, go back a little bit of history, the church as I say, through acquisitions for the for a thousand years, owns tons of property. One uh, and this came to a head a few uh, a few years ago. There is a property in West Jerusalem in a uh, part of his, uh, Jerusalem that is solidly, completely, in, 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 you know, inexorably Israeli, called Rahavia. It's a very large neighborhood. Uh, in 1950, uh, the church leased this to the Jewish National Fund. Uh, which was uh, basically the org- as a quasi-state organization that own- that operates owns and operates real estate for uh, throughout much of Israel. The Jewish National Fund, in turn, sublet some of the uh, lets uh, sublet some of the property to developers and also to the Israeli state. So in Rahavia right now, the Knesset sits on church land, the Jewish National Museum, Israeli National Museum sits on church land, the office of the Prime Minister, the office of the President, numerous other government offices, and the rest of Rahavia is essentially Jerusalem's equivalent of the Upper East Side. Uh, Extremely uh, valuable land. Uh, Well, in 1990, 1950, when a 99-year lease was signed, nobody thought, who thinks 99 years in advance? Well, it is now 2019, and all of a sudden, the end of the lease uh, is coming. And the problem is that when the lease ends, we are required to let the Jewish National Fund have the right of first refusal on the land. But if we can't agree on uh, on a value, we go to our, there is something in the in the contract that provides for arbitration, and. The valuation of the land at the time, uh, when you know, in, at the end of the leases, will be an enormous increase in the rent paid to the uh, patriarchate. No matter even the most friendly arbitrator to the uh, to the Jewish National Fund, they're going to see their rent go up by uh, several digits. Uh, <clears throat> so the Jewish National Fund has been trying to figure out how to deal with this. In 1994, uh, 1994, I may be off by a year or so, uh, the Jewish National Fund bribed three lawyers to obtain the then patriarch's uh, signature on an extension of the lease for a small piece of property that a developer wanted to develop but wouldn't develop it unless the lease was extended. Uh, They were caught, and uh, all the people involved ended up in jail. Israeli jails are caught by the Israeli police uh, trying to defraud the Jewish National Fund. They took $20 million from them. The patriarchate at the time said to the National Fund, why are you doing this? We would have extended, you know, the $20 million you paid to these lawyers, we would have, we would have extended the lease. That was a, to us a perfectly reasonable price. 
the uh, lawyers, uh, the Jewish National Fund said, no, we'll give you four million. Uh, why four million? Well, that's all we managed to recover of the bribe. Uh, so we ended up back in court uh, suing each other. And uh, it, this is a very small part of Rehavia. So the church in the end, realizing that you know, we might win the case and be bankrupted winning it, turned around and found a very, very powerful Israeli Jewish developer and sold him that small parcel of land. And uh, you might be interested, it sold it to him for about $40 million. Mm -hmm. and, but that developer is now somebody who can take on that sort of case. And this is $40 million for a property that he can't touch for another 25, 30 years. So you can imagine what the value of the overall properties are. That bill was submitted just before Lent in 2018. Uh, at the same time, the mayor of Jerusalem, who like mayors of all capital cities, is always cash-strapped. I'm, I'm a native Washingtonian. I can tell you, we, we spend all our time fighting with the federal government over the fact that we can't collect a lot of taxes. Passed an ordinance uh, uh, based, uh, passed an ordinance redefining what constitutes church properties. The actual churches can't be taxed, but redefining what uh, constitutes church properties. And in the same day, I believe, that the bill for the confiscation of church land was sent to the Knesset, the mayor sent a bill to the churches uh, for about $200 million in back taxes without defining either what the property was that was being taxed or how far back back taxes went and froze the bank accounts of all the churches in Jerusalem. And then, and the court case, all these things happened within uh, two days of each other. And that was right at the beginning of Lent. So the churches needed a dramatic uh, moment. So they closed the church of the Holy Sepulchre right at the beginning of Lent when millions of tourists are coming to Israel. The Israeli government, I must say, moved quickly on the first two cases. The justice minister was called in and told to withdraw the bill immediately. And the mayor was apparently beaten about head and shoulders until he discovered that he had other things to do and he withdrew his own actions. The court case, of course, takes its own uh, route. So this is where we are. There are political elements in Israel who see votes to be made by going after church uh, church properties. There is some people who have vested economic interests, as for example, shareholders of the Jewish National Fund. And there are people who have an ideological uh, reason to es uh, essentially eject the Christian community uh, from the city of Jerusalem. And so where does the case stand now? Okay, the case is, uh, we, we filed a, a writ, I think is the technical term, to the Supreme Court, asking them to stay the decision on, uh, to stay the decision uh, and prevent Aterat Kohanim from expelling the, uh, the existing tenants from these properties, or subtenants in this case. And uh, we've asked the Supreme Court to consider new evidence and send it back uh, for a trial. And we've asked the Israeli government to intervene as well. Uh, all those things are in the pending status right now. And if none of those things happen, if you're not successful, what do you think are the possible ramifications? For us, it's a nightmarish scenario. 
Uh, if Eteric Kohanim expels the tenants and does to those four properties what it has done to every other property that they've taken over in the old city, it will be impossible for Christians to enter and leave the old city through Jaffa Gate. It will be impossible for the churches to conduct their, uh, their rituals and religious processions and so forth. It will be impossible for a very large percentage of the remaining 2,000 Christians resident in the old city to have a normal life. So they won't be able to conduct their businesses. It is, uh, it, uh, we expect to see barbed wire up, disruption of life. Oh, and the other thing is Atera Kohanim. Uh, we regularly find churches next to Atera Kohanim properties being vandalized. Uh, garbage tossed into them, windows broken and so forth. So we fully expect Eteric Kohanim to do everything possible to make it impossible for uh, the churches to conduct their uh, their business in the city of in the old city of Jerusalem. You know this is desperate. I mean, as the lawyer said, until now they bought obscure properties in obscure parts of the city, and they were a nuisance, and but they weren't a threat. This is a threat. This is a threat. That if they take over and if the same thing happens that happened elsewhere, where the police don't show up to keep the roads clear, where the police don't arrest people for beating up people in the street, where the police don't keep armed settlers off the streets, where if, they, if what happened before happens again, we don't know how we could function. All right. On that note, let's ask that you keep us up to date on your progress on this, Ambassador Theros. And we thank you very much for taking the time. Thank you, John. I deeply appreciate the opportunity. And I wish you luck. Thank you. To listen to more podcasts with John Metaxas, go to johnmetaxas.com. <laughs>